how do I get these people who have super limited attention spans and zero accountability, how do I engage them to be able to get value from my product or from my company in a very limited amount of time? February 1st, 2019, and welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice that stop growth dead in its tracks. I'm Dave Darrington. And I'm Adam Evermescu, and today is actually a very special day. What day is that? Is it going to scare me? It's National Texas Day. That Yeehaw. scares me. <laughs> hey, I lived in Texas for about 20 years. So, How's that border uh, wall coming along? Oh, my gosh. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I thought it was National Serpent Day today. It's, it is also National Serpent Day. <laughs> maybe, maybe less political. <laughs> Don't tread on me. Okay, so this, this episode is actually part three of our informal trilogy that's related to instructional design and customer education. Because we have so many questions about how to gather information and do uh, discovery and needs analysis and how to actually produce really good content. So frankly, we'll be able to come back to this topic on a regular basis because it's a really meaty topic and a, a question that we hear a lot. But today, we'll figure out what it takes to become a great instructional designer or content developer in customer education, especially if you're transitioning into it from another career. Which happens all the time. It happened to me. Thing happened to you. Yeah. Who, happened, who hasn't happened a lot of people we know? To? Yeah. Now, if you're hiring your first customer education person, right? This is that glorious moment where you can say, "I get my first hire, my first FTE." This is going to help you figure out what backgrounds to look for. So, think about this in terms of experimentation, Adam. Many people, I think you would say, don't know what they want to become. Right? They, when they, they grow up. Yeah, what, what do I want to be when I grow You know what I wanted to be? I wanted to be a physicist at first. And then I ended up being a chemist. Then I ended up, nah, but it's a long story. But When I was in kindergarten, I said I wanted to be a farmer. You want to be a farmer? Well, that's what I said in kindergarten, apparently. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I wanted to fly. I wanted to go to the moon. But <laughs> let's get back to customer education. So in terms of experimentation, many people don't know. They want to become an instructional designer. Or they don't know if they want to go into customer education. Most people in the field don't major in it uh, in their undergrads. They're... I would say there's probably not a program explicitly for customer education. Maybe we should change that. There are, there are maybe eight universities that I've found that have anything like that for an undergrad degree. Not customer education, but you know maybe even instructional design. Right, related to it. Yeah. So, so I guess we would say they get there really through experimentation. Yeah, so to, to put our academic hats on, we are going to interrogate the notion of what it takes to get into the field. Oh, I totally love that. Interrogation. I didn't think we'd get to that in this podcast, but now we're interrogating I don't notions. Think I, I don't think I've ever seen a thesis presentation that doesn't use the phrase interrogate the notion at some point, so let's do it today. I'll have to go back and look at my thesis. But <laughs> All right. Um, so as always, we're beginning with the hypothesis. Uh, so Adam, so what are you thinking about this? All right, well, the way I see it, most instructional design and content developers and customer education come from really one of three places. And we'll go from most to least frequent. I think most frequently, you see people coming into customer education from parallel roles in the business, like support agents or CSMs. Uh, then maybe second most often, you see people coming from internal L&D or enablement roles. Mm -hmm. And they say, hey, you know what? I had a great time training my employees. Now I'm going to train customers. Uh, and then maybe least frequently, 
from an instructional design or an ISD type of master's program. So the, the big question that people are asking around this is what's better? Do you want to have someone who has a degree in instructional design? Do you want someone who has field experience with learning and development? Or do you want someone who has that customer-facing experience and the customer empathy? Or all of the above. Or all of the above. Well, all of the above, that's the unicorn. <laughs> the purple squirrel. Okay, so then that hypothesis we're testing today, written in words or told in words, to become an instructional designer in customer education, you'll be most successful if you have a degree in instructional design. Hmm, that's well, a notion worth interrogating. Let's rip on this. Let's get into it. Okay, so... Again, going from most to least frequent, let's start with CSMs and support agents who end up becoming customer education professionals. So really, this is one of the most frequent places that trainers and content developers come from because they've already been working with customers quite a bit in their career. And, and frankly, the younger the company, the more frequently I see this happen. They're the rock star CSMs or support agents who naturally end up gravitating towards training customers or documenting things. Do you see that often, Dave? You know what? I'm actually going to give one of our listeners a shout out today. Um, our friend Eli. He's been in the customer education channel that we talk mm -hmm. on. E Eli from Guru? Yeah, Eli. Oh, so right, hi, yeah. Eli, if you're you're out there. And I know he recently had gone through this very thing. Shout out. Shout out. And uh, so being serious, though, it's... So I worked at Gainsight, and Gainsight was probably had more customer success managers you could shake a stick at because that's what we did, and that's kind of how I got my start. You know, I was in the customer success org. I came in to do to start developing some training material, but a, that was always on the tip of everybody's mind. They were they were doing training, they were building decks, they were doing all this stuff, but that didn't lead to some problems. Um, yeah, that's definitely an entry point. Uh, and, and Eli and other people have said this to me. Oh, well, I got my start as a customer success manager. And then uh, I decided I wanted a little learn more. And I really like talking to people. And now I'm here. Yeah. Well, so what, what kind of problems, Dave? What kind of problems coming in from customer success? Yeah, you, meant, you mentioned there were some problems. Well, one of the cases that I had actually had very explicitly is, well, with a, as a customer success manager, there are, are there's a different there's different segmentation to how you do your job. Right. You might be on one end where you're really active and you have a low customer count that you support. So maybe ten or twenty accounts. I mean, uh, not not massive because you're very high touch. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, commonly what you're doing is hey, a new feature comes out, I have a deck, I sit down and I talk to somebody. Maybe, and I know that some of the customer success managers that I've worked with more recently have done this as well, they do training. They have done training before I showed up. So that's good in that you have that personal narrative, but guess what? It's one-to-one. -one. It's not one-to-many. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. And sometimes things are wrong, not because the person's got it wrong, because their deck's old, they don't have time to update it. Um, maybe they don't like doing it. Maybe they do like doing it and they sacrifice the rest of their job. It's just not your role. It's not your function. It's not what you should do to really aspire to having a great customer education outcome. Yeah. And so if you're a CSM or you're a support agent, even if you are naturally good at it and you naturally gravitate towards it, you don't necessarily get the, the coaching or that's not what you're measured on. No. Like how well you train or how well you develop content. Right. And, and now if, if you're that person, and I think of Eli and I think of other people that I've been talking to before, this is a really great opportunity for you. This is career development. Like, you know, if you're spending all of your time with customers, you understand it, you understand the product, you've got empathy. Yeah. Well, why, why, like one of the weaknesses of somebody who comes in from maybe an ID background, instructional design background, 
who hasn't been working with customers as directly is they don't have that that one-to-one that like I have a, a relationship with you, Adam, and we work together to build this podcast and we can talk and bounce ideas off of. So I, I might not have that. You do as a customer success manager, and that's amazing. So you know, we, we don't frequently factor that in. Now, if you love training customers and you love helping them to learn, that could be a career that could be a career path for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's pretty common when you know someone really has been successful working with customers or they're the you know, one one of the trainers on my team at at Optimizely, uh, he he'd gained a reputation in his previous role as a the customer whisperer. Customer whisperer. The customer whisperer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I couldn't even say it because it was a, a tongue twister. <laughs> um, yeah. So when, when you when you have that empathy and when you have the ability to to captivate an audience and and really empathize with them, that's something that honestly is hard to train. So. You know, I can I can learn the instructional design skills, but I can't necessarily learn empathy. No, so, not at all. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's something you just have to have. So, you know, you, you also, in terms of career development, you, you get that benefit of learning instructional design and content development skills. And that's something that because you're not being coached on it, you're not being measured on it in your previous role. That's career development for you. You get to actually learn those things. But but that's also the risk, right? Because if you if you come in from that side of the house a lot of startups especially don't realize what those skills actually are. So, you know, you're a support agent and you become the training person. I'm uh-huh. putting that in quotes at, at, at the org. You start to get asked to, Hey, you know, put, put together this deck or make this webinar, or why don't you just go deliver this? And you're being asked to do stuff, but you don't necessarily have the perspective or the uh, theory to say, Hey, the thing you're asking me to do is, or isn't reasonable. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't have, yeah, you don't have that, um, that, studied practice in working to articulate these programs like a someone coming in from an instructional design background might have that being the case that's that's not always a problem i mean i think we've talked before what this whole podcast is about is finding the others so you may need to reach out you know it's it's sometimes hard to find a mentor somebody that's been there and done that because I, i and i think i told eli and some other people about this that okay I think it's easy to freak out. I know you're really excited about doing this and you want to go do it. And some people have said to me, oh, well, I'm going to go get a degree in instructional design now. Oh, wow. Okay, well, that's a commitment. And kudos to you for doing so. But you could equally turn and find, try to find a mentor to help you do that. What are the key tips? Yeah, a lot of times you're not going to find that at your company if your company is small enough because you, you are going to be in a company where nobody has ever really done instructional design. Yeah, that's true. So you need to get outside, regardless yeah. of what you're doing. Like, I, th- I think the phrase you've used in passing is the accidental instructional designer. Yeah, I'm one, right? I didn't start out in this field, but I've written technical manuals. I've done all this stuff. I know how to write. I went out and I started looking at websites like ATD, um, picking up a class here and there, getting a, a book about it. Uh, fit it into your day. You don't have to get in. You don't have to get so far down the road such that you have a degree under your belt. Yeah, I, I think it's important to get yourself to the point where you know what others' experiences are, and you can pull out um, either benchmarks or best practices, or you know, really just share what other people are doing. Because what, what you don't want to become an order taker when someone comes to you and says, "Hey, uh, build this training." You want to be able to actually ask some intelligent questions about how to put this together and maybe be able to make a recommendation about what to experiment with. So I would say, you know, for, for these accidental instructional designers out there, um, find a mentor, uh, go to 
what is it, customereducation.org to go to the, the customer education Slack channel, mm-hmm. uh, find the others. Um, but then there's there's also there's there's real professional development, right? Like there's courses and conferences people can take. Totally. Any recommendations? Uh, I think one of them here, like LinkedIn Learning, I think we've talked about that before, an online learning site. Uh, I just mentioned uh, ATD, um, TechKnowledge, and DevLearn have uh, great material, instructional design material, content development courses, boot camps, you name it. It's all out there. And yeah. I think and ATD Technology and DevLearn, for our listeners who aren't familiar with them, are, are conferences. And so they're, they're held annually. Yeah, and that's great because not only can you go and you pick up great details on how to do things, but guess what? Networking opportunity. Yep, absolutely. And you're going to meet uh, a lot of people who go out and speak on this. Um, and these people, a lot of the time, are, are blogging. And, and you can find them on LinkedIn or on their own blog. So, for, for instance, uh, Melissa Milloway, who's a learning experience design manager at Amazon, she is a great person to follow. And she has a LinkedIn column that she writes, I think, weekly on instructional design practices. But she's also all over these conferences. Like, you'll, you'll meet her there. Um, there's communities out there, like mm-hmm. Articulate has uh, an e-learning heroes community where you can talk e-learning with people. Um, but there's also books and blogs like uh, Design for How People Learn by Julie Dirksen. That's a pretty fundamental uh, instructional design book that I love. Yeah. Oh, let me take the next one. No. Uh, the Michael Allen's Guide to E-Learning. I'm I'm pouring over that right now, and it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, he, he has such a an interesting take, particularly on on-demand. Yep. That's so cool and great, a great read. You need to pick that up. And um, Cami Bean wrote, uh, she, she was actually the one I think that came up with the term The Accidental Instructional Designer. That's that's her book. <laughs> um, Kathy Moore has a great blog. She has a, a whole system called Action Mapping that's kind of an alternative mm-hmm. to some of the ways that we, we analyze uh, our instructional design projects. So there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, and we can put some of these links in the show notes. But totally. You know, it's it's not just about finding your people, but finding some of these really experienced practitioners and leaders who can point you in the right direction. Yeah, no, I would say my uh, my recommendation, potentially our recommendation, is don't worry so much about having to boil the ocean. Right? There's so much experience and there's so much to learn about that field. But for you to get started, it doesn't require all that much. No. Get out, pick up some books, go talk to some people, find a mentor, do something. Right? Do something. Because most people do nothing. Yeah, and because they're freaked over, out. They're, they're freaked out, and they, they don't know who to turn to, and they feel like their their time is just all getting put into the things that their business are asking to do. So it's like, get out of that order-taker mentality, stop doing everything that everyone is asking you to do, and make sure to carve out some time to actually learn. Totally. Okay, so that's that's uh, the support agent or the CSM who ends up becoming the accidental instructional designer. Now, there, there's another place that we see customer education professionals come from, which is these parallel roles mm-hmm. in L&D or in uh, sometimes sales enablement or, or other internal enablement roles. Right. And they end up becoming customer education people. It seems like a natural thing because you've, you've had these similar skills, arguably sometimes the same skills, but then... Again, you're inside your company. So let, let's pare that down and see what are the pros and cons. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that one thing that's, that's interesting, if you come from that background, is so many of the conferences and so many of the books and a lot of the things even that we just mentioned uh, a moment ago are really designed with internal enablement and learning and development professionals in mind. It's, it's about workplace learning. It's not necessarily about customer education. Yeah. So you already have this really strong field of development opportunities available to you if you came from that background. 
So let's think about this again. And you know, I've I've been in this place. You've been in this place. We're trying to hire somebody. Yeah. Like and when you're a hiring manager, and you're actually trying to hire a, an instructional designer or a content developer. What what do you look for? What well, do you this think is about? this is super hard. And I've I've been there several times. And it's like, well, well, what do you want? And again, in in customer education, we've got to think about the big picture. We we need a lot of different skills. We love a purple squirrel. We're we're not going to find it. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so we find, again, uh, people that have a lot of internal L&D experience and they're going, hey, you know, I really love, I, w- I want more. I want to talk to my customers. I'm, I'm excited about that. It's a different cohort. Because when you talk to people at work, they're like, yeah, I got to go do no training. And, uh, but you have some kind of like, you've got them under your thumb a little bit because you got to get them going. Now we have to goad and, and inspire and get other people who may not naturally want to go to our training into right. it. So, so unlike in an internal workplace learning environment, you, you can't, your, your customers aren't going to get fired if they don't do the things you train them to do. So the accountability looks different. Absolutely. But they might churn, right? They might churn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you actually have to be more persuasive in some ways because you end up having less face time with your audience and less direct control over what they're going to end up doing. That's absolutely right. So you've got other things now, now, you're going to have to balance speed and quality or, you know, doing it right with, and I, and I think we str- we all struggle with this. I, I would argue that, well, I know I'm a perfectionist. Would you say that you strive to be perfection? I, I, I struggle with perfectionism. Yes. You know, the perfect is the enemy of good. Perfect is the enemy of done it in customer education. And this is the hardest thing that for, for me to break out of my soul. So if you're coming in for that background where you've had plenty of time and, and you work internally, so if you push a week, it doesn't matter. Customer's in pain right now. Yeah, That's commonly a struggle that you might have because you want this thing to be perfect just like you would do it internally. But you know what? The customer on the other end who needs to learn this feature is need to get to this outcome. We need to get it done now. And you know, if you say this to uh, an internal instructional designer, an HR L&D type person, they, they might say, well, you know, we have, we have deadlines, we have to work quickly, we have to release things that are imperfect all the time. It, totally, mm-hmm. totally true. Uh, I think one of the biggest differences is when when there is a customer involved and when there's revenue at stake from mm. it, yes. the, the pressure to deliver for that customer becomes so much more immediate. So you have to be able to empathize with the customer and make sure that they're ultimately getting what they need for the long term um, but that you're you're not sacrificing the integrity of what you're delivering. So there's there has to be a little bit of push and pull there. Yeah. So I mean that's that's around quality too. Like the more customer facing cu- customers and and employees. You know, Adam, I I have kind of a philosophy about this, and it's a little bit radical. For me, I don't see a difference between a customer, an employee, or even a partner. When I develop training material, I see presentation being somewhat different, yeah. risk being somewhat different. But for me, I look at all content the same because I want to reuse it in many different modes. I look at doing customer training, but I know I'm actually going to be using those internal L&D skills because I have to do the same thing for my own team. The more customer-facing content is, the higher the quality bar. But then you've got that time factor in there too. So it's 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 a trade-off. I don't know if I agree with you, Dave. I, don't, I mean, it's tempting to say that, you know, People are people, and and you know we're, we're educating humans, and let's be colorblind about this. But I, I actually, I, I think that as a customer education instructional designer, you really have to be thinking about the customer first. And certainly, you can repurpose what you've built for an internal audience or for partners. But really, your your first instructional design challenge and your foremost instructional design challenge has to be, how do I get these people who have super limited attention spans and zero accountability, how do I engage them to be able to get value from my product or from my company 
in a very limited amount of time. Yeah, no, I can't argue with that. I, my, my opinion on that is that that's kind of a high bar, but if I build content towards that, surely I can reuse it in other capacities. Absolutely, you, you definitely, I, I've reused it too. And it, it, you know, when you build something that's customer quality and you're using it for, for internal training, a lot of time the internal people love it because they're like, Oh <laughs> my gosh, this is so much better than that uh, sexual harassment course that I took when I onboarded or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Um, yeah. So, and, and it's a different scale too, right? Like even, even if you work at a large enterprise and you're doing internal L and D for a company of, uh, you know, what, 35,000 people, mm-hmm. Typically, at that point, you're not educating the entire company. You're you're educating for one business unit. Whereas, if you're doing customer education, you actually might be responsible for producing material that's going out to um, hundreds of thousands or millions of end users. Right. Or and and those are people you don't know. Like when you're doing it internally, you know, you've got slow scale. You know, you, you it's containered. But yeah, you could go sky's the limit. Yeah. So you, you kind of have to make some assumptions about learning styles, similar to how you how you would do in. Um, you know, for, for an internal audience as well, because obviously you can't produce content that appeals to everyone at, at every point, but you're going to have to make more assumptions about who your learners are, uh, what their level of accessibility is going to be, how to, how to create affordances for them, uh, so on and so forth. I, I also think that, you know, the, this role, when you think about it along those lines, you're, you're actually thinking about something that's more like what we would consider learning experience design today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than maybe traditional instructional design. So, you, you know, you, you can't, just design a course and then hand it off to a content developer. Explain that a little bit more. So yeah. what, what, do you, what do you mean by I can't just design a course? Here's, or, here's what I mean. I mean, when, when you get into larger organizations, often for their internal learning teams, they have their instructional designers and their content developers uh, kind of cordoned off from each other. They're not the same role. And so if you're an instructional designer at a really large organization and then you're applying for a role as a customer education manager mm-hmm. at a, a smaller startup for instance you have to start getting comfortable with the idea that you are going to be asked to do everything right yeah, you're, that's you're not just going to be able to come up with a design doc and then oversee the project while someone else creates the content no you're designing it and you're developing it uh-huh yeah and more and more and looking at the anal- uh, analysis of it you're measuring it you're often you're delivering it if the company is small enough you might be doing both a design and delivery role then you're presenting to leadership on how well it all worked right if, if you're the if you're the leader of the team um, <laughs> if you're if you're just coming in as an instructional designer you might not have to do that but hey sometimes you know you might have the opportunity to do that as well so what may i think that would spill over into one of our last points on this is that you know, when, when we talked about analysis, now we're talking about measurement. Mm-hmm. Now, measurement works somewhat differently. So at first pass, level one, I guess you could say. Yeah, the Kirkpatrick reaction metric. Yeah, that one is pretty much the same. I mean, yeah. you can literally take, rip and replace, you know, put that up from here over into customer education, and that's relevant. If the person, ta- here, here I agree, it's like people are people. Did the person like people. the course? Did the person get value from the learning experience? Mm-hmm. So just like you would measure that for internal L&D, you're going to measure that for your customers. Yes, but unlike internal, like let's say you and I worked at the same company, I can go over to you and say, hey, Adam, what did you think about the class? And you say, suck, Dave, Yeah, <laughs> because we're or, friends and you can honestly say that. Yeah, or I can go to the manager of the team that I'm training and I can ask them for longitudinal feedback. Yeah, or yeah, whatever. You have internal type feedback mechanisms if you're if you're lucky. Yeah, you but, know who your learners are and, and, and you're going to be able to stick with them for longer. Exactly, but now we've got this scale. We've got people that we don't necessarily know, nor if we're doing on demand, we might not ever see them face to face. So how is that? How does that complicate 
that next level of measurement. It, it means that you're going to have to think about it a little bit differently, right? Because when you're starting to get into those higher levels of measurement, like measuring application or measuring the results of the learning program, you're not necessarily going to be able to track that same team over the same amount of time. Uh, you have to think about it more in terms of the customer life cycle. So you might be measuring things more like how quickly did this customer get to first value or mm -hmm. what percentage of this team is currently certified? Because you're going to be dealing with just di and different time periods, different uh, life events, so to speak. So it just it changes the way that you measure, especially as you go past that initial reaction. Right. That could get a lot more complicated and, and require some additional tooling. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. So it's like you, you bring your your instructional design measurement tool belt with you. You bring your Kirkpatrick and your your Jack Phillips and you know whatever else you want to bring in. But you are going to have to adapt it a little bit, knowing that customers um, come and go in a different way than internal employees come and go. Excellent. Yeah. So let's get to our last topic for uh, for today, which yeah. let's talk about instructional design master's program. Yeah, this kind of gets back to the core of our hypothesis, right? right? Should I should I get my master's in instructional design? So I mean, there there are some great master's programs out there, and and there are also some great um, certificate programs for instructional design. So you might see these called uh, uh, masters of science in instructional technology or a master's of education in instructional design. Um, but generally, you're looking for something like instructional design, instructional technology, educational technology, instructional systems. It's, it's, all, it's some combination of those words. And we'll, uh, we'll share a link in the show notes. Uh, Connie Malamed, who's the, uh, the e-learning coach, she has actually a, a resource page with all the instructional design graduate programs that, that she's compiled. Excellent. So now there's also online versions of those available that from what you've seen, right? Yeah. So you can do some of these on site as, you know, full master's programs, but some do these as online degrees. And in fact, some don't even do degrees, but they do online certificates. So, you know, that that's better for someone who doesn't have a formal background and wants more of a continuing education program. It might yeah. split the difference a little more between doing a full master's and you know, just learning completely ad hoc. Yeah, for, for me, like, I think this is a really interesting topic because I did not come in with an instructional design background. My, my background, quite frankly, is uh, I've got a master's degree, but it's in computational chemistry. How does that relate to anything? Well, well yeah, it's basically the same, right? <laughs> it's like uh, I'm pushing pushing chemicals around. Um, but I, I toy around with that idea. For me, I already have a master's degree. I don't want to get another one. I'm more akin to going out and getting an online certification just to say I have that on, on, in my back pocket. You know, I've gone through these. I understand all the things that I would normally be presented with as an instructional designer. And that would be a good add uh, to my career. Yeah. You know, for, for me, I, I don't have a formal education in instructional design either. I've, I've gotten a lot of it, frankly, in the workplace and from reading and from doing the work and, and from taking courses on it. But, you know, as, as much as we like to talk about professional certifications, uh, I, I don't have a professional certification in instructional design. Uh, I was I was thinking about taking one called the CPLP a few years ago. I've seen that. That looks like a really good program. Yeah. And, and I, I actually went through the whole, uh, you know, the study regimen for it. So, I read up on all the topics and I learned everything that I needed to learn to take the certification. I actually never ended up taking the You basically did it then. <laughs> well, no, that, that's like an ABD, right? Like you can't, you can't, be, you can't be a PhD or an ABD. It's all, all but the doctorate. <laughs> so I, you know, I, here's how I see it. In, in academia, it's important to have a master's. It's important to have that really formal credential. But from what I've seen, at least in, in most 
businesses, experience wins out. You know, to that point, here's an experience that I've had that I thought that blew my mind. I have been an adjunct professor, and actually I designed an entire BA program in game design for Webster University in St. Louis when I was still there. Did I have that formal training? No. But by merit, and, it, and this is another avenue that I think is really helpful. You're doing this for your day job now, but if you're thinking about moving into this field, go sign up to teach a class, community college. Um, universities are always looking for adjuncts. Why? Because you don't want to do that full time. <laughs> Trust me on that. But no, I learned so much about people by being at a, at a good liberal arts university, not just the things that you would have expected. I had to, to learn. The, here, here's a really great example, Adam. I learned the hard way of what, it, what happens if you're not prepared. And what I mean by that is I'm going into an instructor-led class. I've got 30 students in front of me, and I blew it one day, once out of the many, many times, because I, I didn't have all my talking points. I didn't have my notes. I didn't have my outcomes. Those are, that's another great avenue. I don't think we really had listed that out before, but I just wanted to share. Yeah. I mean, that's really cool to think about. It, if you get your um, experience from both the theory and the practice, and mm -hmm. you have the experience of being in front of a classroom and trying to, to test out some of those skills, uh, you end up learning a lot of what you need to learn, right? You learn a lot, and you learn it fast. Yeah. So, you know, that that's what we're saying. You know, experience wins out. And, we're, and I don't mean to sound anti-academic, when I say this, I think there's a lot of value in uh, getting formal education and formal training because ultimately you have to be able one way or the other to learn the theory and to be able to be confident about the way that you design courses and the way that you talk about the value of the courses that you create. Um, but when we talk to people who have formal training and they're trying to get into the field, one thing that I see that they struggle with all the time is that the formal processes that they learned in their uh, graduate programs, they they go out the window because... <laughs> really? Out, yeah, well, because they're all of a sudden getting asked by their businesses to move quickly and to just get it done. And they can't do things, quote unquote, the right way. So it becomes a real struggle. If the right way by the authorities who say Addy and Sam and all these other methodologies are the way to do it. Well, right. So like, you know, thinking about it, we, we've talked about Addy and Sam mm -hmm. as instructional design methodologies in a previous episode. And, and you know, there, there was, I think, a long time where if you went to your master's in instructional design, you would learn these theories and you would even maybe create sample projects under the assumption that you had these really long Addy-like timelines because you were creating curriculum, say, for either, you know, a, a, a higher education use case or maybe even a, a really large right. corporate right. Uh, style of initiative. And then you, you come into a startup and all of a sudden you, you can't do your full Addy, right? All no. the assumptions are different. Yeah. And you don't have the time. So, you know, again, don't, don't want to sound like you shouldn't go through these programs, but as you're going through these programs, I would say it's worth investigating um, how close to the the real world job that you're going to be walking into uh, that it's going to hew. So are you going to be working with modern instructional technology that you might be using and implementing on an actual job? Are you going to be uh, learning about different rapid development methodologies that you would be using, you know, if you're going to go uh, work and do instructional design in a tech company or in a startup? Yeah, yeah. So things like that. Uh, maybe most importantly, are you going to be doing actual projects that you can put in a portfolio um, to share with potential employers? Because I know people who have gone through master's degrees where they don't actually have any 
projects under their belt. They've learned the theory, but they haven't done any of the practice. Right. So, you know, coming into a startup, it's a, it's a, it's a rude awakening. I think that a lot of people in our profession, just to be clear, know too little, not too much about what makes learning effective. So again, I'm not saying don't get the degree. I just think that, that, you know, on one hand, people who come in with master's degrees, they can get a leg up in finding jobs and bringing something to them that an accidental instructional designer would have to pick up elsewhere or learn on their own or go find mentors. And like, that can be a struggle too. But I would caution against letting the theory get in the way of practice too much or aiming for kind of, as you, you were talking about earlier, perfection, not progress. So, so wouldn't you say that that's like, um, you're, you're going to have to put yourself on the shelf a little bit. If you've got that kind of background, you're coming into it, you're going to have to sit down and realize, Hey, now I may be at a startup and things are moving really fast and I've got to get this stuff done. I'm going to take what I can and I'm going to move. And you might be able to get back towards that angle for right now. You might have to adapt to the reality of your environment. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of the, um, the form versus the function. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if the right way to think about it, but like, you know, if, if you're walking in and you have all of this knowledge about what makes learning effective, you can definitely use that to argue for the right way of doing things. Um, but you can't be so married to the theory that you've learned up right. to this point. And like, even, even for, so even for me, I didn't go to an instructional design master's program, but I did learn a bunch of instructional design theory. Um, and I've walked into jobs and roles where I'm like, well, no, this is the right way to do it. This is the mm -hmm. process that we were supposed to follow. And, and what I found as time went on is that the, the, the process and the assumptions that I was making just weren't working. They weren't letting me develop quality content. Um, they weren't, letting me produce things that I could measure and were shown to have an impact. So, um, you, you have to be able to balance those. Yeah, it's tough, but it's a good, th it's, it's good to have that background. Yeah. Especially, you know, if you're going into software, things are going to change so quickly. Uh, the assumptions have to be a little bit different. All right. So, so, okay. Well, that brings us to wrap up another episode. This was a good one. So if you're coming in from any of these different roles and looking into this position, you know, what, what I think, again, we're doing here is we're finding the others. We're bringing everybody together. And we want to start hearing these different voices and how they reflect, how we can build this as a discipline. Maybe someday there will be a degree out there. So customer for now, education. a customer education degree, I mean, yeah. I can see it. I mean, you're starting to see programs in customer success at universities. This is like one of the next trends. Dear universities, consider making this a curriculum. Uh, I'll talk to or University of Washington about it. Okay, so if you want to learn more, you enjoyed this podcast, we have a website too. That's at simply customer.education. You heard that right. Just spell them out with a dot in the middle and you got it. There you can find show notes and other material. As we grow this, you're going to see a whole lot more. And please, if you found value in this podcast, we'd encourage you to share with your friends, share with your peers, share with your network. And help us find, find the, others. the others. So the other thing that would be really helpful is if you can go to Apple Podcasts or uh, Podcast Addict or Spotify or wherever you rate things and uh, give us a, a nice rating and a review. Uh, I mean, it doesn't need to be nice, but you know, Nice it, is nice. Nice, nice is, is good. Nice, but nice, nice <laughs> is nice. I am at Avramescu on Twitter. And I'm at Dave Darrington also on Twitter. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. Go out and educate, experiment, and find your people. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Adam here from the C-Lab Podcast. 
I'm proud to announce that I just released a new book. It's called Customer Education, Why Smart Companies Profit by Making Customers Smarter. You can actually find it now on Amazon.com in ebook or in print format. Uh, you could also do bit.ly slash customer education. Made you an easy little bit.ly link. So I'd really appreciate it if you pick a copy up and let me know what you think. Thanks, everyone.